Yeah, do you think we can squeeze uh, 30 minutes out of this one? I, yes. Okay. And please never do a Bugs Bunny voice again. Okay. But we're talking about... What's Opera Doc? What's Opera Doc? Good day and welcome to Writers Get Animated. I'm Chris Leva. And I'm Mackenzie Worrell. And today we're talking about one thing. What's Opera Doc? Question mark. The animated short that's arguably the best animated short ever. Although I won't argue that. I think we're both in agreement that it is. Maybe. Oh, no, no. no Chris is going to argue. No, I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to argue. <laughs> I'm not going to argue about this. But before we get started talking about what's Opera Doc, because that's all we're talking about this episode. Mm-hmm. What's Opera Doc? Bugs Bunny, Elmer Fudd, Chuck Jones's masterpiece. I will agree with that. It is Chuck Jones's masterpiece. Okay. Second um, would be Duck Amok. Ugh. Let's before Duck we talk about that, we do have some unfinished business from a previous episode. And perhaps our most important unfinished business of all time, even more important than Elf versus Elves. <laughs> Go on. Two episodes ago, during our Oscar animated shorts, I mentioned that prologue looks like it should be set to the song Take On Me by Aha. After saying this, <clears throat> I went home and did it, and it sinks perfectly to the point that i texted chris oh my god you have to try this and it's just it's beautiful you have to try it i'm not sure if it's intentional or accidental i think it's dark side of the rainbow i i I think it it there's something about the pacing i don't think the structure was meant to work as well as it does i don't think they went for it that way but there's something about the pacing and the structure of that beginning so we're going to have a treat. We're going to make sure that you are able to see and witness this. We're finding a way to get this out to you. We'll send out instructions. Onward to today's topic. What's Opera Doc? The 1957 Chuck Jones Mary Melodies classic. Masterpiece. Masterpiece. Clasterpiece. It's a cl- <laughs> it's a clasterpiece. Yes. It sounds every- way worse than a classic masterpiece. I can't think of another way to do that. That's the only way I can think to <laughs> match this. master class. Oh, no, that's something different. That is, yeah. Clasterpiece. Oh, uh, clasterpiece. The clasterpiece. clasterpiece. Which is, um, I, I was feel like uh, as a kid, this is something I'm like, oh, yeah, it's an old cartoon. It's it's an, one of the first Bugs Bunnies. It makes sense. Cool. It's awesome. Um, doing research, it's actually like season 19 of Bugs Bunny. I mean, Bugs Bunny first came out or first appeared in a show, um, 1938. Mm-hmm. So he's an old character. By this point, fifty-seven. That's we've seen a 20. lot of bugs in Elmer. Yeah, and I think at this point, that's part of what makes what's Opera Doc so good is we've seen a lot, but let's do something a little off the wall. Mm-hmm. Let's take this relationship, meta the crap out of it, and set it to opera, like you do. Like you do, which is also the secret of many successful. Mary Melody shorts with the Rabbit of Seville. Can't think of a third one. <laughs> there are others. There are others. But um, pulling this together with the Wagner music and everything, and mm. it, it there's something that elevates it just a little bit higher, mm. which you, we're going to talk about a little bit as we go. But 
just getting into this, a lot of people consider this to be the best short we've talked of mm. all time. Mm. Um, there is animation historian Jerry Beck, whose website, cartoonbrew.com. Check it out if you haven't. Uh, there's a lot of great articles on there. I've spent a lot of time combing through their archives. That's um, how I learned most of my news now. It's really great news in, in there. They do a great job. They talked to a thousand animation professionals um, and made a book in 1994 of the 50 greatest cartoons. And number one was What's Opera Doc? Which makes perfect sense. Um, in my head, this has been the greatest cartoon, short, cartoon, animation thing, whatever combination of animation and cartoon that you want to pick. This is the greatest one in my head. Well, in 92, the Library of Congress deemed it, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, and they preserved it um, in the National Film Registry. It was the first cartoon for that honor. I did not know that. Which is weird, because it's 1992, and you would think that other things would have... Like Mickey Mouse, Steamboat Willie. Something, you know. Which I imagine has been preserved now. I would certainly hope so. I would so. guess. I could think of a couple things off the top of my head that should be in there. I don't know. National Film Registry has such interesting choice now. It's like they ran out of live action now. So it's like, we picked this movie that no one's heard of from 1942. And now they just keep pulling it out. Yeah. We must have all the movies from the 30s and 40s in the film registry now. Good. <laughs> Save. Save. <laughs> Moving on to the 80s. <clears throat> Um, so, Chris, what was your experience with What's Opera Doc? When did you first encounter it? What did you think of it as a kid? What do you think of it now? Oh, my gosh. That's a big question. I can't three questions. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you listed it like it was one question with multiple commas. I'm practicing to be Katie Couric. I think you're doing quite well. Thank you. Well, Katie, um, <laughs> I think I can answer that question with another question, which is, when I can't remember, <laughs> I can't remember when I first saw it. I know I saw it as a child. Mm -hmm. um, I probably saw it in my grandma's bedroom where the one of the larger TVs was. Mm -hmm. um, but I do remember it just being hilarious. But it's not one that's that I really laughed at, hmm. which is weird. Uh, I remember just experiencing it and not laughing, but knowing that it was just remarkable. Mm. I don't know what it is about it, but it's, it's one of those things that's so funny. You're smiling and don't know how to react to it. You're just, it's just enjoying it so much in a different way. Yeah. It's, it's joyful, not necessarily funny. Right. Well, it is funny. It's not funny. Ha ha. I hate when people say that. I, <laughs> you I, just said it. I know, and I hate <clears throat> it. I hate myself for saying that. But um, as an adult, I haven't watched it consistently. <clears throat> but <clears throat> when I do watch it, I start noticing um, subtlety. <clears throat> as a child, you notice the big story arc <clears throat> and the big story jokes. Um, as an adult, you notice subtlety which I think we'll talk about as we get into it. I got um, a little too subtle. You did get a little too subtle. I went English major on this. But it's amazingly subtle. And I think it's that detail and that attention to detail 
that really sets this one apart from a lot of the other shorts. Absolutely. Not saying that a lot of Looney Tunes don't strive for the attention to detail in character and form and everything, but this short in particular is meticulous. Well, I was reading a little bit about the production and what went into this short itself and behind it. I don't know if you've also read this online. I forget where it was mentioned, who cited it. Um, but it's talking about how Chuck Jones is a master at time management as a producer. Mm. Um, and so they were, they were expected to turn out like one cartoon every so often, like month or something. I don't know. Um, and so what he would do is he would just churn out a bunch of Roadrunner shorts all in a row and then spend a huge amount of time making something he was invested in, like What's Opera Doc? And they actually spent their budget for a good portion of months or whatever amount of time it was to pay actual um, ballet dancers to come in so the animators could model them. Hmm. This is a lot of detail going into a cartoon. I mean, now we have, we're used to like motion capturing people and hiring people who can do the movement and all this stuff. And Chuck Jones, I don't know if he pioneered it, but no, he was really invested in it for something that was a seven minute short to play before movies at a movie theater. Well, what happened, it was, it was more instrumental in feature length animation to get um, Disney was, was really well known about getting the actors to perform for the animators. So that way the animators could get that live action reference. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times then take it and stretch it. Mm -hmm. Some animators didn't rely on that as much because they didn't feel like the live action people were going far enough in their posing and far enough in their characterization. But if you're trying to get the idea of, oh, this is what fabric does. This is what um, this particular outfit would do. This is that angle that would look strange with this helmet or whatever. It, it is important to get that live action reference. Mm -hmm. Not that you're going to rotoscope it by any means. Um, but the fact that you're going to be taking it and using it as reference. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> There's only so much that you can get from your imagination in terms of pose and getting interesting. But if you wanted it to be real and make reference to something real and ground it, then that live action reference in that dance, I believe it because those, the dance scene, the pas de deux, the pas de deux, as, which we learned from Rochelle as, as Dr. <laughs> Rochelle Riggsleva, our resident dance expert, which she actually, that's her degree. <laughs> that is, so, that's her actual expertise, not just the Simpsons, but, but dance. So, so Dr. Rochelle Riggsleva is describing the pas de deux for us. Um, there, it, it looks legitimate it, and it gives it that legitimacy in terms of grounding mm -hmm. that that short needs. And it's so fascinating that they, go to such lengths to represent ballet and opera in such a proper manner because um, someone else pointed out line, this is for many kids at the time and even today seeing this, this is their first exposure to opera and ballet, mm -hmm. having never seen either of these things before. Which and so with true. no frame of reference, they do it accurately. Hmm. I don't know about the opera well, <laughs> accurately, but they do yeah. take the epicness of yeah. opera. Or the spirit of it is accurate. The spirit of, of opera <laughs> there. While still having jazz with the muted muted horns, <laughs> doing the Rite of the Valkyries with muted trumpets. Mm. That was a good Daffy Duck. That 
Daffy? I would. Uh, never mind. Daffy Duck does not. Sound I would. Like I would a, imagine that Daffy Duck would make that sound if he was trying to impersonate what's Opera Doc. Uh, no. Okay. That's. It's in my head canon. No, it's okay. happening. <laughs> I don't know what mix is in there for you, but it doesn't. Well, when I um. So in Santa Fe, New Mexico, mm. which is about an hour from where I grew up in Albuquerque, which Bugs Bunny always <laughs> took the wrong way. <laughs> I always used to want, I, I never made the joke, but I always wanted to say it. It was me. <laughs> Bugs Bunny would ask and I would go, yes, uh, you want to go right. And then, but I never made that joke. But it was really funny when I thought about making that joke. Oh, that's in your head canon. Yes, it's, okay. it's, it's in my fanon. I'm responsible yes. for Bugs Bunny ending up in wrong places. But uh, in Santa Fe, they had the Chuck Jones Gallery, which I always wanted to go to. Hmm. And I have gone several times. Uh, so, <laughs> you always wanted to, and you did. <laughs> right. I, I, always begged, I always begged my parents to go. It's like, let's go to Santa Fe. Why? To go to the Chuck Jones Gallery. Like That would be why I wanted to go. Other would people go with, for the Navajo artwork or the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum. Or, <laughs> it's like, no, I must go see the, this animated <laughs> cells. And um, oil paints, mm-hmm. oil paintings from Chuck Jones, which were gorgeous. Um, just... Bugs Bunny and oil painting. It's, oh, I wanted it. <laughs> um, but they had, um, Chuck Jones was there once and had a book signing. And um, I went there. My brother had broken his arm and Chuck Jones signed his cast, which was really nice. He wasn't doing autographs except for the books. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I told him at that point, I was really young. I was just asked, you know, I want to be, I want to be an animator. I said, what do I have to do? And he says, study life. Mm. draw life we can teach you how to draw cartoons and rabbits <laughs> but study life <laughs> so he, he his advice was you learn how life works study that life and once you do that then you can draw the cartoon rabbits mm. man I wish someone taught me how to draw cartoon rabbits <laughs> study life first study life first and I think that could be Regarded just in writing, yeah. Is you, if you get the reality of it, the life of it, then you're able to take your your signature style to it. You can't be absorbed in story world and write something true to life that people are going to like. Exactly. I think I have a solid B plus in life. I think I'm doing good. Well, good. That's great. I almost give you a high five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this table is so wide. Okay. It's an Air Five. Air Five. <laughs> so back to what's opera doc. Yes. So, but getting into that, <clears throat> so that grounding in reality, mm-hmm. um, which is strange to say about what's opera doc, but it's totally grounded in reality. Well, the reality of what it's doing. So it, it creates its world and grounds its world. I guess there's that. Mm-hmm. So you have to be true to three things, four things. You have to be true to opera and the scale and epic quality of opera, particularly Wagner's ring cycle. Mm. You have to be true to ballet and the movement of ballet. You have to be true to the characters of Elmer and Bugs, respectively. Mm -hmm. And you have to be true to... There was a fourth one I lied. Those three. (laughs) Maybe Elmer and Bugs are separate things. Right. True to to Elmer, true to Bugs. That's what I was thinking. Okay. So you have to be true to those three things. And in that mix 
of those three things coming to just being honest with those three and, and being grounded in all of those, you end up with what's opera dot. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I was thinking if this is so far into the Elmer and Bugs relationship, and it really is just kind of taking the core of that, of Elmer wants to kill Bugs. This is just now their character. This is common knowledge. Let's take it to the highest degree possible. It's like when The Simpsons makes fun of itself. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, they're parodying themselves, but it's because we all know, like, Homer's going to do this. Marge will do this. And it subverts those expectations, which is ultimately what Opera Doc what what's Opera Doc does. That's hard to say. That was. Never say that again. <clears throat> so what happens in What's Opera Doc? What is the plot? I think it's, with something this classic, it's easy to talk about what happens, but it's hard to talk about the plot because we all have seen it many times usually. Um, I've seen it two or three times this week. Yeah, I saw it this morning. Yeah, Where exactly. Jack saw it for the very first time. Oh. He did not laugh. Did he like it? We'll talk about it. Okay. But he did not laugh <laughs> until the very end. So, uh, but we will, we'll discuss it. Okay. We'll discuss it. Spoilers because, for the end of What's Opera Doc. Hey, <laughs> because we're talking about the plot, what happens. Yeah. So, go ahead. Continue. Oh, okay. So here's, here's my take on the plot. I had to yes. think about this and really try and going at it dramatically and in Aristotelian fashion. <laughs> of course. Someone <laughs> wants something. And then they have a discovery and they reverse what they want. And ultimately that is the end of the plot. I'm talking in my, my high nasal voice now, not nasally, but you know, it's up here and British apparently. British um, <laughs> <Just> like. <clears throat> yeah, my take, uh, we begin at a state of rest. Elmer Fudd wants to kill <laughs> bugs. Yes. The show is called Writers Get Animated. We can I, talk about this. I know. I know. <laughs> just, it just feels dirty. Slightly. <laughs> slightly. So wait. Uh, go on. Go on. You taught me things, Wendy. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so we begin at a state of rest. Elmer wants to kill bugs. We know this. That's just the given. That's usually the plot of most shorts. We just start with that in this one. Um, and so bug then, bug? Bugs distracts him with love which is something that we don't always see him distract him with. I think we've seen it before, possibly. We have. Yeah. Um, and in this case, we get these lovely eyelashes at Elmer Fudd as he's falling in love. And he finds something more meaningful than killing the wabbit. He finds love and meaning in his life. And he has that. And then the helmet falls off of Bugs, who's in disguise as Boonhilda. And it falls down the steps. And then Elmer realizes that he can't be in love because it's his enemy imitating a love and so in that moment he loses love the thing that he realized he wanted most in life and settles for killing the wabbit what he originally wanted and he succeeds and in that moment he discovers that succeeding in his original goal is no longer what he wants and he feels genuine remorse for killing the wabbit so Elmer Fudd, this is Elmer Fudd's story it is not a Bugs Bunny short it is an Elmer Fudd short in terms of plot he is the main character he has the full discovery and reversal and growth. That's my take. Chris has been laughing the entire time. Is it accurate? <laughs> it is accurate. I'm, I'm laughing because of you just keep saying wabbit. I mean, that's I you know, kill that's the wabbit. I, I know. But kill the wabbit. Kill the wabbit. And I, I, I know. And it's just, it's just funny. <laughs> 
it's it's that mixing of high art and low art. Oh, you you're segueing me in. I'm I'm giving it to you. Thank you. Here we go. You're welcome. <laughs> because they take it so seriously, and and the reason why it works is because they don't ever wink. Mm-hmm. There is no winking about this and w- the way they're performing it. Mm-hmm. It's just they're playing it completely as if it's real and grounded. So the love story is not played ironically. We know what's happening, but never does Bugs in any of his gesture or looks belie the fact that this is actual love. Mm -hmm. They play it like a true falling in love scene. True operatic falling in love scene. I know, but what I'm saying is... (laughs) It doesn't feel false. No. The 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 way that they're expressing it, and they'll do silly gags about, you know, Bugs is dancing one way and Elmer's looking the other way, and just the way that Bugs is laying on this couch. You the know, fifty different ways he lays on the couch. It's just it's just ridiculous that way. But there's nothing about the love. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't do something where they don't sing off key. Mm-hmm. The singing is legitimate. They sing all the right notes. And, and they wrote this song for the short. Right. Well, they wrote the lyrics for the short. Right. But the song, um, the the joke is that it's Bugs. So you get Bugs singing and having his Brooklynese-ish Bugs Bunny accent singing to, to Wagner. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the joke. But it's not, it's being true to Bugs being true to the style, being true to that these two characters are falling in love. Mm-hmm. Which, it, it's just... Bugs, All sorts of complex. Yeah, much complexity. I don't know if Bugs thought through that plot. I don't think he did. <laughs> I don't think he did. Bugs, Bugs ends up being in a panic. Mm-hmm. Because that's what he's doing. He's panicking. He, he starts off mocking... The spirit and magic helmet. Magic helmet. Magic helmet. Magic helmet. <laughs> we both did the, the gesture. <laughs> magic helmet. Which the gesture, to be clear, is a, a thumb and a fist kind of gesturing to the left. Like, get a load of this guy over yeah. here. That was more Bronx. Yeah, I know. I, <laughs> I, I lost it. Bronx bunny? I lost, I lost my bugs. <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> bugs is higher, but I can't do him. I can't. I can't do a bugs. Okay, that was close enough. I try, but <laughs> I, I reached. We all reach towards bugs. <laughs> I don't know if any of us can ever attain bugs. That's the name of the book. <laughs> None of us can ever attain bugs. <laughs> and I think that's where that's where it falls apart. The story. <laughs> you can't attain and keep bugs, bunny. Aw, you brought it back around. I'm pulling. I'm trying to. Um, I'm trying to keep it on on. I know, but, but thinking go ahead. thinking oh of this high and low art, um, there's actually an essay that I read, oh gosh, in college a number of years ago now that I love, and it's High and Low Thinking About High and Low Art by the philosopher Ted Cohen. I think it's a wonderful essay, and it does something that really changed my life and not many people know about. Um, Ted Cohen gives us a one-sentence definition of what art is, and you can't argue with it. It is absolutely perfect. No more professors asking in class, like, what is art? Define art. You can't. Like, there is a definition. I'd never want to have class with that professor. Thank you. 
Whatever professor that was you just did. I that's never just wanna... me. Oh, that's you as that's a professor? Just me, yeah. Oh. I know. Okay. I'm not on. a professor, though. Um, but Ted's... Ted's. <laughs> Ted Cohen's definition of art is art is anything that you care what other people think about it. Say that one more time. Art is anything that you care what someone else thinks about it. So with this table in front of us, Chris mentioned it's rather long and we can't high five. If I care that he cares about this, then I'm also concerned about the well-being of the table and how people perceive the table. I see it as a work of industrial art and I wanna know what other people think of it. When I decorate my apartment, I wanna know what people think of that decoration because I've invested a lot of time and effort to create a feeling. It is art. When we talk about cartoons, obviously Chris and I think that they're artistic in some form and we care what other people think. That's why we share our opinions about this. And Mr. Cohen says a lot of stuff in this paper. He also talks about the width and narrowness of culture. And he's a, he's a philosopher um, and he opens by kind of talking about things that he cares about. And he says like, oh yes, I'm a philosopher so I care about these things and the TV shows The Simpsons and Northern Exposure. This is written in early 90s. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I should clarify that. <laughs> um, but he talks about The Simpsons and Hamlet specifically, how he considers them both to be forms of obtaining value and he cares what people think about The Simpsons. They don't people think about Hamlet. And while we all have Hamlet, Hamlet is high art and it makes us better as a culture. His liking of The Simpsons, although that's now, I would also argue, high art, because everyone knows it. But at the time, in the early 90s, it was uh, low art, and it was something that made him better and different than culture. And he needs that, even though it doesn't make everyone better. It's not a shared knowledge. So there's width and narrowness of culture. And he argues that the wideness or narrowness of a thing's appeal doesn't matter. There's no better worth than one or the other. It just matters who it affects and what people think of it. It's a very philosopher way to look at it. And I just, I love it. I recommend reading it. Um, and What's Opera Doc really takes these two things, high art and low art, and just slams them together, which is what I like to think we do with our podcast here as we talk about writing and cartoons and hope that people take us seriously. I take cartoons very seriously. I do too. I just hope people take us seriously. I don't know if I could. <laughs> Well, seriously, in a way that we're educational and funny, maybe tweeted us. Just say hashtag seriously at WG Animated. I, I okay, okay, I will. <laughs> you're you're going to tweet at us? Yes. <laughs> okay. Self tweeting. I don't know. I don't. I don't understand. Let's let's talk through this a little <laughs> bit deeper, too. I, I think we've gotten very deep. We've gone. Down the wabbit hole. Uh, Pretty. I thought I was sorry. I was really proud of that one. I was not expecting to say that. <laughs> and it just manifests itself and I had to. I love it. But um, let's talk about what makes up this cartoon, mm -hmm. this animated short. Um, let's talk a little bit about structure. Okay. Ready? All right. I'm ready. Lay it on me. So you gave us the plot. That it's Elmer Fudd cartoon, mm -hmm. essentially. Not a Bugs Bunny cartoon, even though Bugs Bunny gets top billing. Yeah. They say it's a Bugs Bunny cartoon, so people will watch it. No one's going to go, starring Elmer Fudd. Yeah, it's like Scooby-Doo starring Velma. 
Oh. Oh, I thought it was a Scooby-Doo episode. <laughs> well, hmm. Actually, I would probably watch that. I would, too. Most people I think would. she should have her own series oh. without the rest of them. Yeah. That's a side note, though. Back to bugs. <laughs> Even though... Uh, <laughs> so, we begin with one of the more serious, um, artistic, and artful openings of a Looney, cartoon, Looney Tunes cartoon ever. We get, essentially, Chuck Jones's take on Fantasia, in a way. Mm-hmm. Night on Bald Mountain, where we have the muscular, expressive shadow of... <laughs> You're doing a great job. I wish this were a video podcast, just so you could see the gestures that Ken is making. <laughs> well done, Mackenzie. Thank you. Um, uh, Elmer Fudd's gestures. And this is just when we talk about drawing life and how Chuck Jones was trying to get life. These gestures are remarkable. You could make a print of some of these just artful gestures of the fingers and the way the hands move and Mm -hmm. you just feel the strength and you feel the muscle Mm. within it it's it's just there sinewy i didn't count but i'm thinking of this now i want to go back and count the fingers on the shadow versus the fingers that elmer fudd has yeah i think there are five fingers in the shadow there are five shadow fingers i believe and four fingers on elmer fudd correct hmm that's interesting so don't know what that says i don't know either but (laughs) That's how we start. We start with that that shadow, and we pull down, and we get exposed to who is making the shadows, and you get your first joke, which is, it's Elmer Fudd, mm-hmm. and it's not nearly as grand as that massiveness. He does not have these muscles, but there's something in the power that's being created. It's the perfect bathos. And we jump to the end, and we go from Elmer Fudd as he is carrying the now deceased bugs limp body Mm -hmm. and we pull out and see his shadow and it is his normal everyday elmer fudd shadow Mm -hmm. he's lost all power Mm -hmm. and now he's complete vulnerability Mm -hmm. so going from there now, my son, Jack, when he watched this, he's very much, he watches things much like I do, which is in a stunned silence as things just whip at your face. <laughs> so just stunned silence. Um, my wife and I were watching his face, trying to see if he was feeling something, and his eyes were just huge. It gets to the end where Bugs has been killed, mm-hmm. and he feel something he starts to realize that oh my gosh they're going with this there goes elmer fudd watching you know walking away with this dead rabbit and he is stunned and he is near about to cry and right when he's about to let loose bugs bunny lifts his head and says well, what did you expect from an hop opera? A happy ending? And my son laughs. <laughs> a big laugh. And turns around and looks at me and just has a massive smile on his face. Mm-hmm. Bugs is okay, supposedly. Mm-hmm. And it just it just was right at the the timing was 
precise. It, it turned the uh, the waterworks knob. <laughs> it stopped it right in its tracks, and they just let it linger. And that that amount of time of letting that raw emotion linger was strong. Yeah, for seven uh, minutes. The the music at the end, it like is it's building towards a crescendo of sadness, like this righteous sadness of. But it never quite crescendos before Bugs says that line. So I think it does kind of cut it off before you can solidify that this rabbit is dead. Right. Oh, I said rabbit with an R. Hmm. Oh, wabbit. This wabbit is dead. <laughs> dead wabbit. Oh. Um, Killed. One thing you pointed out when we were watching it the first time also was there's an excellent moment of foreshadowing at the beginning. Um, after the whole, like, magic helmet bit... Elmer goes to demonstrate his power, and he strikes lightning on a tree above Bugs, and it burns it to a crisp, and there's like a little bit of water dripping down from a burnt branch onto Bugs before he runs away. And at the very end, when we first see Bugs dead, there's a flower hanging above him, dripping water onto his head again. Exact same moment. Lightning killed him from Elmer Fudds. It's interesting. And they use my favorite, uh, my favorite old cartoon trick in this moment. They've animated Bugs prostrate in the rock with some yellow shading and more folds in his fur. It's almost as if the background artist drew him. And when things are drawn by the background artist, you know they're not going to move. That's my trick in Scooby-Doo. You always know something's going to move because it's like in brighter colors. Because they bet the... Yeah. <laughs> they've added the animation later. And so they've used that trick here as well. And it looks like Bugs is dead. He's not going to move. Because he's, there's no chance of it. Mm -hmm. Background artist. Also, you notice when the background artists get their hands on a character or on something, it tends to be more detailed. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you have this painting of bugs splayed out dead, um, it just it, it just solidifies that moment even more to have to give it that grandiose detail. Because even when Bugs enters as Brunhilde, trying to save his skin, <laughs> there's not as much detail there. But his death, there's just just so much detail to his, as you were saying, the folds in his fur and everything. Mm -hmm. So, hmm. his death is where everything changes. Also a good name for a book. <laughs> well, the... <laughs> This is one of only three times that that Elmer wins, which is fine. I mean, you got to throw Elmer a couple bones throughout history. Yeah, and <laughs> the entire series, as it were, mm. Elmer's won three times, and this is this is one. It's so tragic. Mm -hmm. he, he realizes won. he he didn't win by winning. What was he expecting to do? Was he going to eat the rabbit? It's just a, it's a play on the, the trope. He was trying to kill the wabbit. He's always trying to kill the wabbit. That's what they do. But usually when he's hunting, he's trying to eat the wabbit. Huh. Eventually. I don't think he figured it out. Could you eat? I don't know. Could you eat a wabbit? I have eaten rabbit. It's tasty. I tried it once, and I could not. I had visions of bugs and Roger Rabbit. <laughs> and as I chewed, I... I, I, I it caught in my throat. <laughs> I could not finish. I could not finish, and it was an expensive dinner too. Ooh, no, I could not eat that rabbit. Oh. I also can't eat duck. 
Duck season. Wabbit season. Duck season. Anyway, we're off track. <laughs> um, I think the last the last imagery that I really want to point out myself, because um, this really struck me, is when it's in the Return My Love song, and Bugs has gone up to like this gazebo high up these stone steps, and then we get a, a shot of Bugs looking down at Elmer, kind of wide-eyed and blinking at the bottom of the steps. He's like, oh, yes! Like, ready looking up at his love. And Bugs knows what's really going on. And then they go up and do their dance, and then on top of the gazebo, Bugs' helmet falls off. We get the same shot looking down the steps as the helmet plunks down the steps. And this time, Elmer's at the top, and he also realizes what's going on. I love this moment. It's so English majory. I just really appreciate it. You're not you're not thinking that they saved it so they wouldn't have to paint the background again? I mean, that works too. But the best <laughs> things happen. Do you want it good, do you want it fast, or do you want it cheap? Pick two. Good and fast. I think they did good and cheap. You think they did good and cheap? Yeah, they spent okay. a lot of time on this one. That's true. <laughs> So it did it good and cheap, and they got they saved a background, but they also used that well. They know what they're saving money on, how to play with that, possibly. Or it was intentional, I don't know. Who knows? Was Bugs really... Uh, was it fake for Bugs, or was it real love? <sighs> I think it's a lot like the Joker and the Batman relationship. Is that real hatred, or are they just like... Friendly enemies. Depending which run of the comics you're looking at. Not Grant are, Morrison. Are you are you Comparing? positing that Batman and the Joker are frenemies? A little and, bit. They might have a burn book or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But like Bugs Elmer, they they've done they've had so many adventures, maybe not together, but with each other. <laughs> Yeah, of one trying to kill the other. Mm -hmm. This is a relationship. It's very Stockholm Syndrome. What's really interesting is that Bugs, <laughs> the first time Bugs runs away, Bugs knows that he can't get away. So he, the only way that he can save himself is to transform to a woman. Mm -hmm. Brunhilde on a massive horse, uh, <laughs> operatically... Um, proportioned? Proportioned horse or as we would think i've met many as felt opera singer um, so they're not all horse sized <laughs> and that did not come out i meant the, the size of the horse oh my god <laughs> you're trying to be nice many of so many i'm seeing my friends <clears throat> opera faces and they're all Slapping their heads now. The horse is very curvy, it's a which very is curve. one of the very interesting visual jokes they do play in this short. Um, and I think you wrote at some point, um, was it Chuck Jones was saying that they gave the horse the operatic curves they couldn't give to Bugs? Yes. Which makes complete sense. Like, the horse looks like opera. Yes. Bugs can't. <clears throat> you can't give Bugs the... He didn't have time for the role. Typical, right. Mm -hmm. He couldn't Christian Bale his way into. I was going to say Christian yes. Bale. Yes, <laughs> he couldn't Christian Bale his way into the uh, <laughs> the size of opera ness mm -hmm. that he needed. The stereotypical size of opera. Stereotypical. That's the word I was looking for. Stereotypical. <laughs> Not, horse size. Not horse size. Not horse size. Stereotypically <laughs> sized. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Now, mm -hmm. now, now you get the word. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
stereotypical operatic sized. And just when that horse sits down. Ah, the bounce. There's so many wonderful principles of actual theater and drama going on in here. And I think the the horse's butt bounce when it sits down goes to, um, there's a theater director I like named Eugenio Barba. And he talks about the, the, I forget the exact name. It's like the principle of opposition or something where a movement has more meaning if you do some of the opposite movement first or afterwards. So the horse sits down. This is a big movement of the horse's butt sitting down. And it just bounces off the ground just a little bit. And it's funnier because of that little bounce. And there's more authenticity to that movement. It's not just a direct butt to ground. Well, it's it's the animation principle of squash and stretch. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the idea behind squash and stretch is there's anticipation and then there's the reaction from there. So when the the butt of this massive operatic horse sits and then smushes his weight or her weight down, and then that registers into that reaction from the ground and back up. I, I rewound that a couple of times to rewatch <laughs> I that. I mean, the joke is that first you see the horse's rear. Mm-hmm. Just the whole sh- the whole shot is essentially the horse's rear as the horse turns around and then sits down to become a ramp for bugs to Slide descend. Off of. I don't know where this horse comes from. I don't know where that horse goes. I wish there was more of this horse. Well, this is not the first time that Bugs has entered on a horse dressed as Brunhilde. Oh, great. Right. We skipped this. I know. Uh, we didn't You did all it. this research on this one. So, in um, there is, they recycled this idea of Bugs on a horse um, dressed as Brunhilde entering in to the same music. It's the same music. You, you, you. It, it shocked me. It's not an operatic-sized horse, though. It's just a regular horse, and Bugs does not look nearly as grand as Brunhilde. This is really... If you talk about good and cheap versus good and fast, this mm-hmm. was just fast and cheap. Now, let me throw together this Brunhilde costume. It's not very well done. Uh, so, there was a 1945 cartoon, Hair... H-E-R-R, meets Hare, H-A-R-E, directed by Frizz Freeling. Um, it's mostly been suppressed because of its Nazi imagery. Mm-hmm. Bugs, I believe it's the first time that Bugs takes a wrong turn at Albuquerque. The very first time? I believe so. He ends up in Nazi Germany? And he ends up in the Black Forest in Germany. And he doesn't learn his lesson to not take the wrong turn at Albuquerque <laughs> after that? So he... he <laughs> He's like realizes that he's in Germany, and there's essentially the this equivalent of Elmer Fudd as a German guy, like this massive blonde-haired German guy out to kill him. Um, and Bugs first accidentally gets some ink on his nose and looks like Hitler. He has a Hitler mustache. Oh no! And then he starts pretending to be Hitler. And the German hunter puts on his Nazi regalia and returns and, you know, Bugs, like, strips him of all his medals and takes down his pants and just humiliates him. And then just when he, the guy realizes that he's not actually Hitler, <laughs> he goes after him again and then Bugs says, oh, and he dresses as Brunhilde and comes in on the horse. <laughs> and it's just, well, it's a much better executed gag in What's Opera Doc. So if you want to search YouTube before hair meets hair and see this moment, you can see 
how well they recycled this gag into this better <laughs> art form. But but Bugs in his desperation in in what's opera doc does not react with violence. He tries to outsmart and manipulate. Mm-hmm. And that's what when we're talking about being true to those three things, being true to opera, being true to ballet, being true to character. Mm-hmm. Bugs in his at his core is manipulative and trying to save himself in a good way. Mm-hmm. Not, That's very true to that. Not selfishly, but he's he the world that he lives in is full of danger. And he manipulates people who are blowhards and out to get him. Mm-hmm. Which is why he likes messing with Daffy Duck. Because Daffy is all selfishness and ego. And Bugs has has no time for that. Daffy. So but if if you want to go the antithesis of, of things, <laughs> there's Daffy, Bugs and And perhaps another time we'll have to do the same thing for Duckamuck. Yeah. Which is the true to Daffy. Yeah. <laughs> Daffy if you take down Daffy to his core, but also Bugs to his core. Mm. So if the anti hero for Bugs is Elmer. Then the antihero for Daffy is Bugs, which we might have to do Duckamuck. Okay. Duckamuck, TBA. All right. Good. Anything else we want to say? What do you think? Have we squeezed enough time out of the seven-minute short? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I do love the short. Um, and again, it's one that I don't watch to, to laugh in huge guffaws over these jokes. It's just... There's something so appealing about it. Um, I just want to watch it and, and feel really good. Hmm. I want to feel good and, and smile the whole time. And you do. It's just, it's enjoyable and artful. It's colorful. You feel smart. Uh, it's fun, but not necessarily funny, but it is funny. Yeah. It's sad. It's got laughter. It's got tears. It's got adventure. It's got romance. Hmm. It's just so good. (laughs) I think that's a good place to leave it. I think so. (laughs) Let's talk homework time. So for next time, we're going to be talking about diversity in animation. Oh, there's a question mark in the middle of that. Diversity in animation? Diversity? Was it a question mark? I don't know. No, that's what we're talking about. Diversity. Diversity. Period. Period. In animation. So we have one episode that you can go out and watch specifically. um, An episode of Star vs. the Forces of Evil, Season 1, Episode 5, Diaz Family Vacation. Also, for your homework... Try to think about um, cartoons with people who aren't white as the main characters or The Simpsons. Because they're white, also. Though they are yellow. Yeah. They are white. White in spirit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So think about cartoons where we don't have like a a straight white male main character and what that means and how that might mean things to other people. It's generic, but that's your homework. Think about that. Think about your life. Think about your choices. Um, As always, thanks to Nigel Coutinho, our engineer, and Jacob Reed for the music. 
Find us on the web, WG Animated on Twitter, writersgetanimated.tumblr.com, and also find us on Facebook, WG Animated, also there. Mm-hmm. And if you enjoy our episodes, leave us a retune. A retune. A retune. A retune. <laughs> a review on iTunes. Review my podcast review. Oh my God. No, no, stop. That's all, that's all folks. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>